for the reading of God's word, Psalm 103. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 502. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do bless you. We bless and praise your holy name for who you are, for what you have done for us in Christ, for your mercy and your grace, your steadfast love. God, show us this morning. Show your people. Reassure us. Remind us that these things are true. Remind us of your great love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> On Friday evening, we had our first summer conversation as we were going through a praying church, and we talked about some reasons why prayer is difficult. Some of you shared some very insightful things uh, about the challenges that we, we have in praying individually and praying corporately. And I read this quote, which was the first sentence from Dane Ortland's foreword to a praying church. He said, the battle to pray is not mainly a battle against prayerlessness, but a battle against discouragement, cynicism, and unbelief. I'm guessing that this exposes some hard realities for us and some deep heart issues 
I think we could substitute the word prayer here with the word worship. The battle to worship is not mainly a battle against worshiplessness, that's a word, but a battle against discouragement, cynicism, and unbelief. And as we come to the topic today of assurance of pardon, we could probably say something similar, like the battle to believe that our sins are forgiven and that we are assured of God's pardon is a battle against discouragement, cynicism, and unbelief. We simply struggle to believe that what God says about us in his word is true. We are gospel amnesiacs, as Paul Tripp likes to say. We are forgetful, and we need to be reminded. Now, we attempt to model this in our liturgy every Sunday. After we confess our sins together, both corporately and individually, we hear the assurance of God's pardon. This is, as Ian Duguid says, uh, the quote I have on the worship guide cover there, says that the assurance of pardon is a scriptural assurance of pardon. It is God's authoritative declaration of the forgiveness of each and every one of the sins of his people in Jesus Christ. And this is, he rightly says, our only hope in life and death. James and I, as ordained ministers, do not have the authority to absolve you of your sins. But we do have the authority, as those called by Christ, to minister his word to his people, to simply remind you of what God has already said to be true, to declare to you the promises of God so that you might cling more tightly to them, that you might believe them with your whole heart, and that you might preach these truths to yourself. That's what we see modeled for us by David in Psalm 103, preaching to our own souls. If you are struggling with discouragement and cynicism and unbelief, if you doubt God's love for you, if you wonder, how could God take me back again after I did that sin for the millionth time? If you feel like the good news is too good to be true, would you hear this morning what God has to say to you through his word? That I would encourage you to read and to preach the, the truths of Psalm 103 to your own soul. I'm going to preach them to your souls, but you need to preach them to your own soul, as David does here. This is the Monday through Saturday calling of the Christian life. Yes, we should be in regular attendance on Sunday morning. Yes, we need to hear God's assurance of pardon, and we need to respond in praise and adoration along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not enough to sustain us in a world that bombards us with a message that we need to be more and to do more, that we need to affirm ourselves and assure ourselves that we are good enough. Just go on social media. The, the whole thing is an experiment in people searching for assurance. Searching for affirmation. We don't need to go there to find that assurance. God gives us the assurance in his word. So let's dig in to Psalm 103 now. Let's see how the Lord, through David, calls us to a deeper understanding of who he is and of who we are in him. 
There are four things that Psalm 103 teaches us about preaching the glories of God's assurance. If you're taking notes, I'm going to list them as we go along with the verses. The first one that we learn, first thing we learn about preaching the glories of God's assurance is that we are to preach the Lord's benefits to our soul. Preach the Lord's benefits to your soul, verses one through five. I love the first verse of this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David here is commanding his own soul to bless the Lord or to praise the Lord. One commentator says about this, the formula, bless the Lord, O my soul, is so familiar to us that we do not notice how odd it is. It is the self summoning the self to praise. In other words, the self reminding the self of the fact that all of life must be finally referred to God's goodness. This hymn begins with the worshiper talking to himself. Now, we might have certain ideas about those who talk to themselves. The reality is, is that we all have some form of self-talk. There is a type of inner voice that we listen to. And oftentimes, it is not our own thoughts or words. Maybe it's actually the voice of another person. You've probably had the experience yourself, or you've heard someone say, I can't get so-and-so's voice out of my head. That's almost never stated positively, is it? Once in a while, maybe, but it's almost always when we say it that way, right? I can't get this person's voice out of my head. It's almost always a negative thing. Something that someone has said about us that we allow to define our reality. But God offers us an alternative narrative. He says, fill your heart and your mind with what I say is true of you. Not because you're awesome and you've done great things for yourself, but because I'm awesome and I've done great things for you. This is what David recognizes here in Psalm 103 as he preaches the Lord's benefits to his own soul. Verse 2 is a reminder that David and we are forgetful. He says, don't forget, soul, don't forget all the Lord's benefits. Remember, remember what God has done for you. David remembers by sharing this personal testimony of what God has done for him, despite his mountain of sins. We looked at confession last week in Psalm 32. We also mentioned Psalm 51. David's pleas for mercy after his his horrible sins of adultery and murder. In both of those psalms, God assures David of his forgiveness upon the confession of his sins. That is the first benefit that David speaks of here in Psalm 103. In verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. We'll see this more in depth below in verses 10 through 12. The second benefit is who heals all your diseases. Now, healing, as we know, as we read through our Bibles in the Old Testament, sometimes it was physical. God's prophets would would pray and people would be physically healed. Their wounds would be healed. Their diseases would be healed. But other times, as I believe David is speaking of here, it's speaking, speaking of a spiritual healing of diseases. Psalm 147 verse 3 says, The Lord heals the brokenhearted 
and binds up their wounds. Obviously, we hear that being brokenhearted. We know that's not speaking of an actual physical ailment. It's speaking spiritually, emotionally. The Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We are not promised physical healing in this life. In fact, most of us, if we live long enough, will probably endure more years of physical pain than we will of strength and vitality. I've joked with people. I just had a conversation with somebody recently. I joke with people that it's all downhill from 32. And if you're on this side of that, you know what I'm talking about. Many of you have dealt with sickness even in the past few weeks. Horrible sickness. James and Lexi had strep throat. James texted me and said, I don't want anyone else to get this devil sickness. Like, that's pretty bad. Some of you deal with chronic pain. Where is the promise of healing? It is, I believe, in these promises of forgiveness of iniquity. And the third benefit, the redemption of our lives from the pit. We can translate this, who delivers you from death and destruction. The biblical imagery here is of God coming to the sovereign saving rescue of his people when they were unable to save themselves. Think about Joseph when his brothers had thrown him into a literal pit. Or the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. Daniel in the lion's den. Us when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Preach that to your soul. The fourth benefit, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Remember, this is David, the king, who wore an actual physical crown who was promised that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. And David doesn't rejoice here in his earthly crown, but that God has crowned him with steadfast love and mercy. Christian, you are crowned as a son and daughter of the King of Kings. You are crowned with his steadfast love and mercy, which are totally undeserved and totally freely and joyfully given to you by our Lord. Preach that to your soul. The fifth benefit, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The word for satisfies is usually used in the context of eating until you are full in the physical sense. But it also has a spiritual sense as it does here. In Psalm 90, in the Song of Moses, verse 14 has this, verse, Psalm 90, verse 14, it has this spiritual sense. Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Again, preach that to your soul every morning. Well, how do we do that then? What does it look like to preach these things to our own souls? I think Tim Keller's insights on this part of Psalm 103 are really helpful. He says, here is how to work the gospel into one's own heart until it transforms. It happens through the inward dialogue, 
speaking directly and forcefully to your own heart rather than just listening to it. Biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth, using thought and memory to set our heart on fire. Our hearts and minds need to be full of God's gospel truths. And that doesn't just happen. In our world of quick downloads and easy fixes, we need to take time to slow down. To slow down and to meditate on God's word. To chew on it. To fill our minds with it. To preach those truths to our soul. Again, hearing an assurance of pardon for the person leading the liturgy every Sunday morning is very important. But it's not enough to overcome the discouragement and the cynicism and the unbelief that the world and our own flesh and the devil will throw at us for the rest of the week. Brothers and sisters, let us remember to preach the Lord's benefits to our souls. Second, preach the Lord's character and saving deeds to your soul. Preach the Lord's character and saving deeds to your soul. We see this in verses 6 through 13. Now there is some overlap here with what we've already seen, who God is and what he has done for us. I want us to focus specifically on verse 8. This is, I think, my favorite description of the Lord in all of Scripture. This is probably the number one assurance phrase. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It was the phrase spoken by the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34 when Moses went back up on Mount Sinai with two new tablets after he had smashed the originals after the golden calf incident in chapter 32. Despite the rampant idolatry of God's people, God declares that this is who he is. God doesn't change, even in the midst of unspeakable human wickedness. He doesn't say, after what you all have done, I'm a little less merciful and gracious. I'm a little less compassionate and full of steadfast love. I'm a little quicker to anger. God doesn't do that. And David experienced the reality of this in his own life, the reality of verse 8. And if you and I are in Christ today, brothers and sisters, we've also experienced these glorious truths. David's description of how verse 8 plays out in verses 9 through 14 is a perfect description of how the Father has dealt with us on behalf of his Son. He will not always chide. Squared here, the Hebrew word for chide is courtroom language, speaking of making accusations. God won't accuse. Instead, he'll plead our case, though we don't deserve it. He won't be angry with us forever, nor will he deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. What do you think of when you hear? the possibility of being repaid for your iniquities, according to your iniquities. Hopefully it's 
uh-oh, right? <laughs> I'm in trouble. That's the idea of karma in Buddhism or the scales of judgment in Islam or working for your own salvation in every other worldview besides the Christian faith, besides the biblical gospel. But that is not the biblical worldview. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And it's not just opposite, it's radically opposite. And this passage points to it. And one thing that's pretty prominent in Hebrew words, a little more than it is in English, is that the same word can be translated to mean totally opposite things based on context. An example in English is the word cleave. The word cleave can mean to divide, but it can also mean to bring together. In Psalm 103, the word benefits that we see in verse 2 is the same Hebrew word as the word repay in verse 10, same root word. The word is translated benefits two times in the Old Testament, but all the rest of the times it's translated as repayment or recompense. The word translated repay uh, has sometimes has the op- this word has, sometimes has the opposite sense as in Psalm 13 verse 6 where David says I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me so this word that God has dealt bountifully again think of benefits uh, that's the opposite of repayment if you're following me here David is telling himself not to forget the Lord's benefits which would be repayments if we got what we deserved, if not for the mercy and the grace and the slowness to anger and the abounding steadfast love of the Lord. God doesn't repay us, but instead he deals bountifully with us, as we see in verses 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. His steadfast love and his forgiveness know no limits. Heaven to earth, east to west. His compassion toward us is that of a good father. How do these truths inform our approach to God? In worship? Do our souls soar when we sing like we did earlier in the first two verses of His Mercy is More? What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Or the second verse What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do we sing this with the confidence that we are children of God who are loved as high as the heavens are above the earth and are forgiven as far as the east is from the west? A love and forgiveness that are eternal and unchanging despite our wretched condition. This is what we see in verses 14 through 19 in our third section. Preach your own mortality to your soul. Preach your own mortality to your soul. 
we see the contrast between the shortness of our lives and the eternal promises of God. Verses 14 through 16 there, we are dust. Our days are like grass. We're like a flower of the field that the wind passes over and it is gone. It's like our front yard right now with our new dog. It has been torn to shreds and there are holes everywhere and all the grass is gone. Or it's like the flowers in the wintertime in Wisconsin. This life on earth is temporary. Preach this to your own soul when your body starts to break down. When your loved ones pass away. When you are faced with your own mortality. But don't wait. Don't wait until your 70s or 80s to grasp this reality. Don't even wait until you're 32 and your body starts breaking down. Young people, teenagers, college students, young and middle-aged people. Some of you would say, I'm still young, right? Maybe not James, but. Preach your own mortality to your soul. The Lord might call you home at any moment. Maybe on your way home from church today. Maybe as you're traveling this summer. Maybe in your sleep tonight. But don't just morbidly dwell on this. Live confidently in light of God's promises. Let the truths of verses 17 through 19 get deep down into your soul. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting and those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God will be faithful to his covenant promises. The one who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy sits crowned and enthroned over all the world, and he will never step off of his throne. We can trust him with our lives. It is with that kind of confidence, then, that we are able to preach to all of creation. It's our fourth section. Preach to all of creation, verses 20 through 22. There is a declaration here to the angels in verse 20. To the heavenly hosts, which could mean angels. It also could mean heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. There's this declaration to, to bless the Lord. His servants. Verse 21, his, his ministers or his servants, and to all his work in all places of his dominion. Again, pointing to God's sovereign rule over all of creation. Everything that exists owes its praise to the one who made it. From angels, to planets, to humans, to plants and animals, dogs, and yes, even cats. This should inform the way we think about evangelism. It should inform the way we think about declaring God's praises to those around us. Every single creature, every person that lives owes God their praise. They're commanded to bless the Lord. They're commanded to turn their eyes to him, to give him thanks for who he is. And this is can feel like an intimidating conversation to have someone with someone 
But if we're talking to someone who is not a Christian, we can confidently say, based on this psalm, God commands you to give him his, your praise. Right? You owe him your praise. And if you're not praising God, you're an idolater, and you will be judged for your sin. We don't need to be shy about that or be ashamed about that. God's word says that. And not only here, it's, it's everywhere, right? So let us be encouraged by this, by Psalm 103, not only to preach to our own souls, but to preach to the souls of others, to remind them that God deserves their very lives. They owe their lives to him. Now, this is a great conclusion to this great psalm, which David fittingly ends by reminding his own soul once again, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, as we prepare to come to this table this morning, this is a chance to preach to our own souls, to remind ourselves that it is by the grace and mercy of God that we are invited to this table. It's not by our own works. It's not by anything we've done to earn it. It's not by coming and giving me a report card of your last week and telling me how good you've been, telling the elders how good you've been. It is by the grace of God that we see the benefits of the Lord on display and that we are invited to partake of these benefits. Forgiveness of our sins, healing of our diseases, redemption of our lives from the pit, being crowned with steadfast love and mercy, being satisfied with good, satisfied. Remember that word means eating until we're full points us forward to the greater reality, to a banquet that is prepared for us, of which this little meal, this tiny little piece of bread and this tiny cup are a foretaste. This is obviously not going to physically fill you today. You're going to go home and you're going to be hungry for lunch after this. But this will fill you spiritually. This will satisfy you. God will satisfy you in the sacrament. So let us come expectantly. Let us come and celebrate the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord.